Thank you for these gifts that you've so graciously given us. We pray that you would receive them with favor. We offer these to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to rise as we read God's word. The scripture passage this morning is from the book of Amos, and it's verses 1 and 2. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam son of Joash was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Probably goes without saying, but the uh, 2020 was a pretty rough year. If we look back at it, uh, and if I had to think of one emotion that described that year, I think it would be fear. We had this pandemic that took us by surprise. None of us knew exactly what to expect. We were constantly facing uncertainty. It was a year that was filled with fear. But now we are, believe it or not, we are on the back half of 2021 already. And if I were going to describe this year with an emotion, I think I'd say anger. This has been a pretty angry year, hasn't it? We started off with a very angry riot at the Capitol. Now people are angry about Afghanistan. We're angry about masks. We're angry about vaccines. I just saw a video this week, I don't know if any of you happened to see this, of the Iredell-Statesville school board meeting. Did anyone see this? Oh, man, it was something else. It was a room full of angry people. Some people were angry for masks. Some people were angry against masks. But the most baffling part of the meeting, you can watch this online, is this moment when these women start aggressively singing the words to Amazing Grace. And I mean, it, it's like they're spitting out the words, just missing the meaning entirely. In that room, there were people on both sides who were being very vocal about their Christian faith as the root of their ideals. But I will tell you that no one in that room looked anything like Jesus. That's the moment we're in. It's a moment of anger. And I think it is very providential that we are now coming to open up a new book, the book of Amos. Because Amos was a prophet who was sent to call the world back to its senses. He was a man sent to remind people that God is real, that God is present, and that God will not sit by idly while his people bring shame to his name. He wouldn't do it then, and he won't do it now. But 
If we're going to understand this book, if we're going to get the maximum amount out of it, this morning we're going to have to do a little bit of work as we open up this sermon series. We're going to have to understand a little bit more about what's going on here. So really quickly, our outline this morning is three things. How do we relate to the world of Amos? What is the message of the book of Amos? And what kind of response does it demand from us? So how do we relate to the world of Amos? Verse 1, it tells us a lot of historical information. We just read it. It says, the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was king of Israel. Something we need to remember when we read a verse like that is that God's word always speaks to our world. Even one like this, even a book like this one, that is very tied to a very specific moment in the history of the world, in the history, the ancient history of the nation of Israel, even this speaks to us. But if we're going to learn the lesson that we're supposed to learn, we're going to have to find out what is going on in that world. What was first going on when Amos preached this message? So we got to start out with a brief history lesson here. All right, everybody say brief. Brief. It's a brief history lesson, I promise. But here we go. Uh, the whole Bible is one big story, right? The whole Bible is the story of God's relationship with his covenant people. It is the story of God's plan of redemption for his chosen people. And it's told over thousands of years, written by dozens of different people. But starting around chapter 12 of Genesis, very right in the beginning, it tells us that God called this man Abraham, who was an elderly man, a childless man. And he said to him, leave your father's house. And follow me as your God. I am going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to give you a promised land. And I'm going to give you more descendants than you can possibly count. And over the course of the next several chapters, it tells that story. How that unfolds. How Abraham has a child and then his family starts to grow. And that family becomes a nation. But they eventually become an enslaved people in Egypt. And so God sends them this leader, Moses who powerfully delivers them out of Egypt and into the promised land that God had promised, and they establish a powerful kingdom there. And that kingdom is called Israel. The, most, uh, the pinnacle of that nation was probably under King David or, or Solomon, his son. That was the, the height of everything. But when Solomon died, his son was harsh and his son was unwise and that led to this moment where the nation split in half it set up this period what we call uh, the divided kingdom and I've got a map up here I don't know if you, how well you can see this um, but it'll help us to understand what's going on so in the north there is this nation and that's called Israel and in the south there is this other half of the nation and it's called Judah and this division, it created some major problems because the temple is right down here in Jerusalem, in Judah, in the southern part of the kingdom. And that is where God said, that is the only place 
you're supposed to worship me. Now that was fine when Israel was all one big nation and Jerusalem is kind of right in the smack middle of both of those places. But the first king of this northern area of Israel, well, he came up with an idea. He said, I've, I've got a solution to this problem. I'll just set up our own temple right up here in Bethel, right, right above the line. And, you know, for good measure, uh, just so we, don't, we know what we're looking at, I'll put a, punch, a couple of golden calves in there so that you, when you're worshiping Yahweh, you'll just have somewhere to focus your energies. And so what happens is instead of worshiping God the way God instructed them to, the people of Israel start worshiping God in a way that is much more connected to their national feelings, much more connected to their feelings of patriotism, to their cultural preferences, than it is to their true devotion to God's commands. That's the world that we enter into when we open the book the book of Amos. Okay, so in, at the beginning of Amos, this split kingdom has now been going on for about 100 years. It is almost exactly the year 760 BC. And we find out that in the north, there is a king who's ruling, and his name is Uzziah. Everybody say Uzziah. Uzziah. And then in the south, we've got a king reigning, and his name's Jeroboam. Everybody say Jeroboam. Jeroboam. Their names will pop up occasionally but you don't really need to know it. But that's what's going on. Uzziah in the north, Jeroboam in the south. No, no, no. Uzziah's in in the north, Jeroboam's in the south. Oh, is that right? (laughs) Guys. This is why I got married, guys. I'm I'm thankful for this woman who's correcting this record that's going forever on the internet. If you can hear this voice from the audience, they're right. I got it backwards. But here's the point. At this moment in history, 760 B.C., both of these countries are doing great. Things are going great for these countries. The the economy is booming. Historically, there are these other nations. Down here, Egypt. Up here, Assyria. And those were the powerhouse countries. Those were the countries that called all the shots. But recently... They have hit on hard times. And so Judah, Israel, here in the middle, they have grabbed a hold of all the trade routes. And guess what that means? Well, they get all the money. They have gotten wealthy. The people in these nations have gotten pretty rich. Well, actually, not everyone has gotten rich. See, what had started to happen was this society that had once been a very nomadic people, that had kind of moved all over, they were more agrarian, more rural, they had started to become an urban society. So where they once easily kind of shared their harvest and their goods with the poor, their land with the poor, now the wealthy people were gathering possessions for their own. They were building these luxurious houses. They were building ornate buildings. They were starting to keep all of their resources for themselves. And so we get this situation where in Israel, in the north, the people, the the royalty, the priests, the prophets, the judges, those people who have power in society, those people are living it up. But the widows, the orphans, The Levites, who didn't have land, 
the foreigners, they're actually doing worse than ever. And that's the setup. Things are going great on the surface. Israel is more prosperous than they have ever been. The enemy nations all around them are in decline. But meanwhile, the poor are oppressed. And those in power are worshiping God through this self-serving, nationalistic faith that is a perversion of God's law. And God sends Amos. A couple of important things to know about Amos. We read here that Amos is a shepherd. He's not a professional prophet. He's actually a pretty successful shepherd. The Hebrew word tells us that he was more kind of a businessman. He was doing pretty well himself. And Amos was from the south. Amos came from a town specifically called Tekoa down here. And God called him to preach to the north, to Israel. So I feel a little special kindred with Amos as a southerner who got to go preach in New England for 15 years. Right? I, I know a little bit what it's like to, to people thinking you have an accent when you clearly don't. Right? That's the history, though. Now, why does it matter for us? Why does all this stuff, why do these maps and this chart? Well, I told you that the Bible is one big story. It's a story about God's relationship with his covenant people. And so if you go past the book of Amos, what you're going to find is this story, this moment in time where God's people are this literal geographic nation called Israel. Well, it comes to an end. Israel gets wiped out by the nation of Assyria. Judah gets destroyed by the nation of Babylon. But God never abandons his people in that. And we see, as we keep reading scripture, the unfolding of this amazing plan that climaxes when Jesus, through Jesus, God enables the whole world to become part of God's chosen people. You can read about it in Romans 11. Paul says that now, when any of us place our faith in Jesus, whether we are Jew or Gentile, we're all grafted together into a true spiritual Israel. Not a political nation, but a covenant family. A family that is spread all around the globe throughout history. So that means for us, as we come and open up this book, here's how we're supposed to relate to it. As Christians, we come as people who follow the same God that Israel claimed to follow. Now, I, I probably should say modern-day America is not God's chosen nation like Israel was. So that means when we read this, we can't just substitute our leaders into the place of Israel's leaders. You know, we can't read these prophecies and says, well, God says if the leaders don't repent, he's going to send an earthquake, so California better watch out, right? The nation of Israel was unique in the history of God's redemptive plan because God literally established that nation himself, and he led it himself for a period of time. However, when we come to this, what we should do is when we hear God Declare his heart for righteousness and justice in Israel. We, as his people, should be convicted of sin. 
Because while the times and the circumstances and the situations have definitely changed, God's character never changes. So we're going to come to this book to hear what God says about who he is and about what he values so that we, as his covenant people living today, might live lives that glorify him. So that's how we relate to it. The second question is, how, what is the message of Amos? The first verse, it told us a little bit of context. Now, let's get into some of the content. This is the first thing that Amos says. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord roars. It says he roars from Zion to the top of Mount Carmel. He roars from Jerusalem where the temple is to this mountain on the far side of the nation 60 miles away. And he says, and that mountain withers. If that's what happens to the mountain 60 miles away, imagine what it means for everything in between. Get the picture? Now that's how you start a sermon. Not, not 10 minutes of historical data. Sorry about that, guys. This is how you start a sermon. The Lord roars. It's 2021. It's, a, it's an angry year. There is a lot of roaring going on in our lives, isn't there? There's a lot of loud voices. There is a lot of turmoil. There is a lot of noise. But it's nothing compared to the roar of God. He is the resounding voice that shuts everyone's mouth. Like when your kids are arguing in the back of the car and you just yell, quiet! But what makes God roar? You know, people today, they'll roar over almost anything, it seems. But it's pretty clear in this book the things that make God roar. Two things, simple things. False religion and injustice among his people. False religion and injustice among his people. What does God roar about? He roars against idolatry and he roars against oppression. To put that positively, God roars for righteousness and justice. And folks, this book, as we read it, it's going to stretch us. Because we live in a time where those two sins are weighing heavily upon the church. These people in, in Israel, these were very religious people that Amos was going to preach to. You know, to put it in modern terms, they were in church all the time. They were at the prayer breakfasts. They were at the Wednesday night services. They were doing all the religious stuff. But their worship had started to look just like the worship of all the other religions of the day. In chapter 2, God says, you have laid down at all the pagan altars. And I don't think the church today is all that different. They laid down at the pagan altars, and, and we, we lay down at the secular altars. 
what we call Christianity in America, it often looks a lot more like the materialistic consumerism of our culture than it does true worship of the living God. Think about it. We worship fame in our culture. And in America, we have built a church on celebrity pastors and musicians. We worship money and success in our culture. And in America, we have built a church that cares more about nickels and noses than it does about salvation and discipleship. We worship the freedom of the individual in our culture. And in America, we have built a church where we are free to leave just as soon as we're offended. We worship sex in this country. And in America, we have a church that is increasingly conformed to the world's teaching instead of the word of God. We worship politics in America. And in this country right now, there is a Christian nationalist religion that is rising up in our nation. A religion that puts the American flag at the center instead of Jesus Christ. That puts party allegiance before allegiance to the word of God. Where people look for salvation in politicians and policies. Where we would much rather fight with our neighbors that we disagree with than show them the love of Christ. And the God of heaven roars. The God who said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. He roars. The God who says, love one another as I have loved you. He roars. The God who changes times and seasons, who deposes kings and raises others up, he roars. God roars for righteousness. He roars, calling us back to true faith in him. He roars in the face of culturally and politically compromised religion. And secondly... He roars against injustice. Justice is, is almost a word that we need redefined for us as we come to this book. I really like the way Tim Keller put it. He said that what we call charity, the Bible calls justice. What we call charity, the Bible calls justice. When we think of charity, what do we think of? Well, I think we, we think of charity as doing a little extra, right? But God actually commands in his word that we care for those in need. He requires it of us. If you go back in the Bible and you start to read through the law books, you find that, that when God set up his society in Israel, he set it up in such a way that the poor and those who, who didn't have anything, that they were able to freely gather crops from other people in society. He says uh, in Deuteronomy, I'm not sure how to get, there we go. Deuteronomy 24, you can read it with me. He says, when you are, at the har when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to it. Leave it for the foreigner 
the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. See, there in those verses, do you hear it? There's this understanding that the poor had a right to the land. This wasn't just an optional choice. It wasn't like what happens at the grocery checkout, right? You want to round up to support the Mooresville Christian mission? This was a command. He says, do not take all the resources. Leave them. You have to leave a part of your harvest for the poor. He says, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to them. Really, he says, God says, it belongs to me. In other words, the righteous and the just are the people who believe that a portion of their wealth belongs to the poor. And the wicked are those who say, no, what I have is mine. And I'm going to be honest, I think we stand so far away from that standard today that we can hardly wrap our minds around it. We have been taught in this nation all of our lives that my paycheck is mine. I worked hard for this money, and, and if I want to give some to the poor, fine. That's, that's my business. But you better never tell me it's my obligation to give it. And you definitely better tell, not tell me that it belongs to them. But that's what God told Israel. And what was the grounds? Well, you can read it right there. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. In other words, he says, you know what it's like to be on the other side of this. You know what it's like to suffer. You've been there before. You know what it's like to have nothing. You've been there before. But you know what else it means? Let's be honest. He says, you have no business being here at all. You would have nothing if I had not delivered you out of slavery and given you every single thing that you have. The God who gave us breath and life, who gave us everything that we have, says this. And here's the message of Amos, summed up. This is what we're going to hear over the next few weeks. God says, because of your false religion and because of your injustice, I am bringing this nation to an end. You have broken your covenant with me, and now you will bear the consequences. You're going to be overthrown. You're going to be taken away. And the nation of Israel will be no more. And that's exactly what happened. Now in the moment, everybody thought Amos was crazy. Things were wonderful. 
Employment was up. The stock market was up. God was clearly blessing them, right? But within one generation, it was all gone. Because God had judged their false religion and their unjust lives. So if that's the message, the only thing left for us is to ask what kind of response do we need to make? This book is heavy, folks. There's no way around it. This is a sobering message. It is like a glass of ice water in our faces. This is a book where God is shouting his heart, where he is revealing his holiness, where he is a blazing light shining into all the dark corners of our lives and exposing our sin. This book is going to show us how selfish we all are. It's going to show us how easily fooled we can be by the empty promises of the world. It's going to show us how even the most blessed among us can quickly forget where our blessings come from and who they belong to. It shows how easily we can be deceived by the voices of those people in our tribes, by the news that we listen to, by the posts that we read, by the powerful people that we are trusting in when we are not trusting in the living God. Folks, I need to be honest, I think, for a second, because, you know, I'm in a moment where I, I'm lamenting for the state of the church. I read this, and I think we are just like the people of Israel. We have been so deceived and so distracted by the world. And I'm afraid that it's going to be possible for us to flip through this book and to, to point all of our fingers at all the bad people who are out there, all those idolaters who are worshiping the gods of money and sex and power and all the corrupt politicians who have no regard for God and all the self-righteous billionaires who are ignoring the poor. And we'll just be thinking about all those people out there. But God is not speaking to those people out there. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to his covenant people. He is speaking to you and me. And we better pay attention. We have to recover God's vision for the church. We have to recover God's vision for this church. If you go out on the street today and you ask a non-Christian why they don't want anything to do with the church, why they have no interest in the church, I bet you that the answer you're going to get sounds a lot like the things God says in the book of Amos. See, we're called to be a community that overflows with righteousness and justice. A church that's not known just for all the things it doesn't like, all the things it's against, but a church that is known for who they follow and what they are really for. Jesus never said the way the world is going to know you're my disciples is by how loud you, loudly you complain when you think people are going the wrong way. 
by how loudly you can yell the words of amazing grace when you're angry at someone. Jesus said, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples. If you love one another. The Lord roars from Zion, and the Lord still roars today. And his wrath against these sins will wipe out anyone who is in their way. And the sobering reality is, we're all guilty. In this year of anger, we have all sinned. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not loved the poor. We have not worshipped and trusted in God alone. But here's the good news. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And as this roar of judgment rings out against our sin, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is the only one who can stand amidst the blast. It says the Lord roars from Zion and Mount Carmel withers. But the glory of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus was withered under God's wrath. So that anyone who would repent and turn and trust in him would not wither but would actually flourish for all eternity in the presence of God. And if that message is true, if Christ has really done that, if he's actually taken the wrath and the curse for us, then there is one response that we can make to this book. And here it is. Three parts. We need to honestly examine ourselves. As we come before the words of this book, we need to humbly ask God to show us the sin we can't see. To take to let us take our eyes off of everybody else out there and instead put our eyes on ourselves. And when he shows us our sin, the second thing we need to do is repent. We need to turn back to the Lord. We need to follow his ways. We need to become the church that he has called us to be. And then finally, we need to love. We need to love one another. We need to love our enemies. We need to love the poor and the oppressed. And above all, we need to love God, our deliverer, who has brought us out of slavery to sin. That's the response. Examination, repentance, and love. May the words of this ancient prophet transform us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even something so detached from our world, a word spoken thousands of years ago to a place most of us have never been, 
to a world we can hardly comprehend. Your truth still cuts us to the heart. And we come before you humbly, confessing, Lord, that we are blind. We need an Amos today to call us out because we cannot see. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would open our eyes. Lord, we pray that you would transform us. And Lord, that your power might fill this place. God, we thank you for Jesus, who without him we would have no hope. We thank you that even in this moment where we realize there are so many things we have done wrong, we still can come to you openly, with welcome, with joy knowing that your plan is not to hurt us with these words, but to make us holy. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.